This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is hour two of the show, and this is the hour where we go deep and we dig behind the headlines on some of the biggest stories of the day. And today, we are talking about the status of reparations. Now, there's been a lot of local communities who have initiated reparations programs and state of California spent two years studying reparations and a reparations committee in California issued a 1000 page report with over 105 recommendations. Uh, but this renewed hope for eventual local and national policies to compensate black folks who are the descendants of slaves seems to have hit uh, some obstacles. Researchers thought that the big issue would be money or perhaps the complexity of trying to pay reparations, but recent studies say that it's not at all about money, and it really is about the American people believing that the descendants of slaves do not deserve reparations. Now, we know that after World War II, America paid reparations for Japanese Americans who were interned. So today I'm asking, is the model used for Japanese reparations one that can be utilized for reparations for Black folks? And is there a pathway? Uh, you know, are reparations even possible in our lifetime? Uh, joining me in this hour is Demario Solomon Simmons. He is the National Civil Rights Attorney founder of Justice for Greenwood and Justice for Black Creeks. He is the lead attorney for uh, the survivors of the Tulsa race massacre of 1921. And also in this hour, Dr. Carlos Hill is here. He is one of the nation's foremost authorities on reparations. He's written uh, a definitive book on the Tulsa race riots, and he is a professor at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, both of them have joined me before on this topic, and I wanted to have you both back. So welcome, Demario, and welcome, Dr. Hill. Uh, Demario, something very significant has happened in your case for the Tulsa race riot survivors since she was last here. So bring us up to speed in terms of what's the status of that lawsuit that's seeking to make whole uh, the survivors who experienced the the racial atrocity uh, in Tulsa in 1921. Yeah, Reva, it's good to be with you always and really honored to be on here with my good friend, Dr. Carlos Hill. So listen, since the last time we talked, our public nuisance litigation, which is uh, headed by three lone living survivors, that's 109-year-old Viola Ford Fletcher, 108-year-old Mother Leslie Benefield Randall, and 102-year-old Hughes Van Ellis, who we call Uncle Red. We love them, and we are just happy that they're still with us, and not just with us, but still fighting with us. And they are the leading plaintiffs of this case, but our case is for the entire Greenwood community. I want to make that very, very clear. It's not a case just for those three individuals. It is for the 40 blocks that was decimated and destroyed. You know, three years ago, September 1st, 2020, we filed our public nuisance case, and I really think it shocked a lot of people because we had a viable theory. We spent over two and a half years fighting motions to dismiss. As you know, Ariba and Dr. Hill, and last May, May of 2022, our judge, our district judge, Judge Caroline Wall, she stated from the bench that she was going to allow a part of our case to move forward. And then just this last, July 7th, we found out that she reversed herself. 
she dismissed our case out with quote unquote prejudice. And we can talk about what that word means. I got some funny uh, phone calls from relatives. People thought we were done. People thought the case was over with. And we felt bad and we were, we were shocked by the unjust and uncalled for dismissal. But we filed within 30 days our appeal to Oklahoma Supreme Court. And the big news is, for those who are, are listening now, is that our Oklahoma Supreme Court accepted our case. And that is huge. And it's huge mm. because here in the state of Oklahoma, 99% of the cases that are submitted to the Oklahoma Supreme Court are not accepted. They are kicked back down to what's called the Court of Civil Appeals, which takes a minimum of a year to work through the process. And obviously, we don't have that type of time on our hands. So we filed our appeal on August 4th, and the Supreme Court accepted our appeal on August 7th. That was a pretty much a record-breaking uh, turnaround for them. So we have optimism. And I want to be real clear. All we're asking our Supreme Court to do at this point is to put us back in the trial court. Give us the opportunity to have discovery and let us have a trial. We're not asking them for a specific remedy. We're not asking them to say we win or lose. We want them to tell our trial court to treat us like any other litigant in the state of Oklahoma, because this is the issue. Since 1984 in Oklahoma, the law is you don't have to present a specific remedy plan. It's called notice pleading, and you know what that means, Ariva, as a lawyer, meaning we have to just do the bare minimum. We don't have to put every little thing and everything we want the judge to do. Yet she kicked us out for the specific reason, saying we didn't have uh, appropriate uh, remedy plans. So it's an easy it's an easy win. It's an easy call for the Supreme Court. We hope they make it soon, sooner than later. So that's where we are. So, Demario, talking about timing, does the Supreme Court have any particular schedule? And when do you expect them to make a decision? And since you said the ask is for them to send this case back to the trial court, how long will it take your team to try this case if you're successful in getting it back to the trial court? Well, to your first question, no, there's no time limit. You know, like it was no time limit for them to even decide if they were going to take the case. And they did that basically in one day from a Friday to a Monday. But there is no time limit. They could decide tomorrow to make a decision on a case or they could decide two years from now. And we, we can't control it. And the way our Supreme Court works, they have accepted the case, but we, they don't have to give us an oral argument. We've asked for that. Mm -hmm. But last year, they only did like three or four oral arguments for the entire year. So it, mm -hmm. it's a very weird thing. They didn't, we, we don't have opportunity to do further briefing. If they want it, we'll do it if they order us to do it, but we don't know. So we're just- well, really Let me ask you this, Demario, since you mentioned the word briefing. When you filed your notice and asked the court to take the case, did the did the, the city who's opposing your case, did they file a brief uh, in opposition? Yes, every all the defendants, we have uh, five defendants that are still in the case. That's the city of Tulsa, that is Tulsa County, that's the Tulsa Regional Chamber, that's the Tulsa County Sheriff's Office and the Oklahoma Military Department, which was the uh, Oklahoma National Guard uh, that came in and did not protect Greenwood, but joined in with the other 25,000 whites. I don't think people really understand the magnitude of the massacre still. I know Dr. Hill talks about this a lot. We're talking about at the height of the massacre, 25,000 whites rampaging through the community, burning down over 1,550 homes, decimating and disappearing over 3,000 people. Listen, 3,000 people we were on the scene on May 30th, and after that, no one heard from us again. We don't know if they were killed, buried alive, put in a river, never heard from them again. 8,000 people were homeless up to 18 months, over $200 million in property damage alone. That's what we're talking about. And all of those defendants 
file oppositions to our motion and they are still saying we deserve nothing, no accountability, no redress, no abatement plan, zero. And Dr. Hill, thanks for uh, putting that in perspective, Demario, so we can understand what the litigation is. And obviously we'll be tracking and hoping to see uh, that you are successful at the Supreme Court level. Uh, Dr. Hill, there was a lot of talk about Tulsa after George Floyd was murdered. Uh, where are we now? I mean, what's the temperature now and what's the conversation like around Tulsa and just around reparations in general? Well, my dear sister, I love being here. Thank you for having me. Let's let's stay with George Floyd. There was a bill in Congress about George Floyd and killing Black people by police and the state. And where is that bill right now? Can we talk about it? Can we say anything yeah. about it? It's nowhere. It's yeah. dead. It's never going anywhere. That is our relationship with Black people in this country. <laughs> mm. we, we will... We will be alarmed by the violence, but when it passes, we go back to the status quo, which is we accept racial violence. We 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 allow it to exist. We don't do anything. We don't challenge the police. We don't challenge the government entities that are responsible for it for changing it. So it continues. So yes, it, we we had an uproar after George Floyd. But what happened? What happened after Tamir Rice? What happened? What happened after Trayvon Martin? It's the same thing. We do not care. This is my position. This is not anyone else's position. I studied the history of lynching and racial violence. I can say for sure we do not care about black people who get killed by racial violence. We have never cared about it. And until something in our culture changes, we won't. And so Tulsa is the most extreme example of destroying a black community in the United States. And with three living survivors from 100 years ago, we still can't get justice. They are alive and they testified in front of Congress. They told Congress and the American people what happened to them and they still can't get justice. Tulsa knows what happened to them. State of Oklahoma knows what happened to them. We spent years researching. We got research going back to 1990, 2000, and we still can't get justice. And let me say this. This is the last time. Reparations is not controversial in America, period. It's not controversial. It's only controversial for Black people who have experienced racial violence at the hands of white people. That's the only issue in reparations that's controversial. We get we do reparations all day in America, but not for black people who've suffered racial violence. And that's what has to change. I'm and so glad you said that. That is simple yet so profound because I'm thinking to a black lawyer who said to me, you know, reparations is very controversial. Okay. I'm gonna call. I'm about to call her back. <laughs> uh, you know, can I? Absolutely, I, I appreciate. Jump it. in. Go ahead. Jump in. Demario. I appreciate Dr. Hill saying that. And one thing, and I, I know just for the audience, when Dr. Hill said we don't care who's the we, he's talking about the powers that be. Thank you. Those Thank who you. want to continue anti-black racism, and you're right, Dr. Hill. We do racism. We do uh, reparations 
We do racism every day, too, but we do reparations <laughs> every day. In fact, the entire civil justice system is a reparation system. When you hit when someone hits you in the vehicle and they break your leg, they pay reparations for your injury. They pay to fix your car. They pay if you miss time at work. They pay if you miss you had to reschedule a vacation. That is all reparations, restorative justice. And it goes back to the, the badge of slavery. I heard you say to Reva earlier about the California and you were talking about the California state. Uh, reparations commission and how things have stalled because of black people, because we still live with the badge of slavery. What is a badge of slavery? See, the 13th Amendment ended enslavement, you know, if you're not a convicted felon, but it also supposed to end the badges of slavery. What is a badge of slavery? A badge of slavery is any legal impediment or disability that prevents you from receiving your full rights. So a badge of slavery is we can't have voting rights because as a badge of slavery, a badge of slavery is you're not paid for the labor that you do or paid at a, at a, at a decent and a reasonable rate. That's a badge of slavery. A badge of slavery is saying just because you had a harm, we don't have to give you any redress because enslaved people didn't have rights. You couldn't go and say, these people took my rages. You need to give it back to me. And that is the same mentality that's in our court systems and in our political system. So it's not complicated. Dr. Nellie Fuller has one of the best quotes, and I love talking about it and saying, if you don't understand white supremacy, everything else will only confuse you. Yeah, no, that, that, that's so important. That, And I want to stay on this topic of reparations not being controversial. Uh, and DeMario just laid out in our civil system of damages, how people are compensated for injuries. When you think of reparations not being controversial, Dr. Hill, can you give examples, not the civil lawsuit examples that DeMario gave, which are important, but other examples where the government has paid in mass people who were harmed by the actions of the government? I mean, there aren't a lot of examples of this. That's the problem across. I mean, in our society, we do reparations and we can name we I can list to you just in Oklahoma. The if we talk about survivors from the Oklahoma bombing in 1995. Reparations payments. Yep. Reparation. And DeMario knows this. Um, if I talk about the 9-11 survivors, no, there was no reason why they should have been harmed. They were doing their job, but because they were in that building and that day on that time and they experienced what they experienced, the trauma and everything else, the United States government, without any activism on their part, said you deserve to be recompensated for what you experienced because of no fault of your own. Yes, yes. That is the principle right. of reparations. No fault of your own. This calamity befell you. And this is the only principle that really matters in reparations, that when it comes to Black people, it doesn't matter. No fault of your own, so what? Mm-hmm. you're not getting reparations. And it comes down to, it's not about the time. Forget the time. The time is not, it's whether or not, and this is what DeMario said, 
the badge of slavery. It's about whether you are worthy of reparations or not. Whether you are worthy of receiving recompensation or restitution for what occurred to you. And the rule, the principle in America has been Black people, whether it's slavery, whether it's Jim Crow, whether it's disfranchisement, whether it's redlining, whether it's George Floyd, no. The answer has always been no, because if you look back in history, when have black people got reparations for violence, for, 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 for again, for not your fault? Mm-hmm. I want to bring in the Japanese, because I think a lot of people look at what happened to them after World War II, the internment camps that they were placed in and the settlement, the dollars. And I know in California in particular, many of the Japanese Americans who were instrumental in fighting for the reparations for their community have been in alliance, in allyship with the California Reparations Task Force and the efforts in California. What lessons, Demario, do you think we can learn from how the Japanese were compensated? And clearly nobody suggests or I think believe that what they received uh, was, you know, uh, was fair. It was, it was a small amount when it was divided up amongst, you know, the the collective body. But what what should we learn from that experience? Well, a couple of things. One, it was not a substantial amount. It was between it was twenty five thousand per individual that was interned, and ten thousand for their descendants. They also received an apology, and there were some scholarships tied to it. And and the thing, and this happened in nineteen eighty eight. For those who are listening, I think one of the things that's really you know we that's rarely talked about when we look at the environment that was going on at the time that caused that to actually go through Congress and be signed by Ronald Reagan. What was going on in the world? Who was the second largest economy in the world at the time? And, and the United States was needing to have better relations with it was Japan. So you cannot discount the power and the international uh, framework that happens. We say black people, we don't have that type of international partners or someone that can come in and have have a, we have leverage. I have leverage against the United States to say you need to do this for these people that will help us do better business with you. So we have to keep that in mind that we, we're on an island here. And it's, it's something I think about all the time. I know you think about it, I know Dr. Hill thinks about it. You know, how can we get justice? We're gonna continue to fight the best we can. We're gonna continue to file lawsuits. We're gonna continue to talk about as we're talking about, organize, vote, all those things. But you know, 13% of the population, 15% of the population, because I think we're undercounted. I think we're a little bit more than 13% to be honest with you. But you know, we're not a majority. And so I think we have to continue to be creative and think about the international partners that we can have, how and how that can help us here in the United States. And I just don't think people really link those two things up. Japan was very powerful and, and America was needing to do more business with Japan. And they had an issue with how they treated Japanese Americans. And that's why it took 40 years. And think about it. The internment happened in the 40s. Those people was organizing and fighting for that for 40 years straight. Now, we've been fighting for reparations for since, since 1800s. So, one, don't don't discount the international aspect of things. And two, this is not a short-term scenario. This is something that we're going to have to fight, fight, fight. They're not going to give it to us. We have to take it from them when we have the power to do it, we have to have the legislative and political power to do it, period. 
Great point about the international influence. Let's assume, Dr. Hill, we don't have a, a country that has the kind of power, you know, be it, you know, because of commerce, because of finance, because of trade, all of those things that make a difference without that kind of international pressure on the U.S. Uh, what what do you think that lever of power will eventually be? Do you think it's young people? Do you think it's the next generation that you know, rejects this notion that I didn't do it. So why should I pay for it? Because we hear that often for people that oppose reparations. You know, why should we pay for something that happened uh, that I'm not personally responsible for? Do you think young people are going to be the way in which we move this conversation forward uh, and really start to see some changes in attitude that can then change legislation that can change action. Uh, think about that when we come forward. More on this topic of reparations on KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back. And in this hour, we are talking about reparations, the status of reparations. Uh, is there a pathway forward? What we can learn from the reparations that were paid to Japanese Americans in 1988 as a result of them being interned after World War II. I have two of the nation's leading experts on this topic joining me in this hour. Uh, I have attorney Demario Solomon Simmons, who is the lead attorney in the uh, lawsuit filed on behalf of the individuals that were uh, victimized in the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. He has three survivors who are 100 years old who are continuing to litigate this matter. And Dr. Carlos Hill, professor at the University of Oklahoma, is here. He's written extensively about Tulsa and the topic of reparations. All right, Dr. Hill, this is the big question. Uh, there are so many polls out that show that the majority of the American people are opposed to reparations. Uh, and we had this moment after George Floyd's murder where it looked like maybe the sentiment was changing, public opinion was changing. And, and the question I'm, I'm asking is, what is it going to take to make a permanent change in the mindsets if that could ever be accomplished, uh, of people who continue to say things like uh, Black folks don't need reparations, there is no uh, economic or any wealth gap between Blacks and whites, Black folks doing. And the biggest uh, refrain we hear is, I wasn't there, so mm -hmm. why should I have to pay for something that I didn't oh. do? So where is the hope on this topic? Ooh. Ariva, Ariva. <laughs> I say Ariva again. <laughs> hey, I only bring smart people on my show, so oh, my <laughs> the I, smartest of the smart. Ariva, I I want to address all of what you said, mm. but I'm going to go real, just simple before I go complicated. We've have a we have a 400 year problem in America and it's not changed. We we can we can talk about it differently, but it hasn't changed. The deficit that we have is the same in 1619 as it is in 2019, 2023. Compassion for black people and yep. black lives. Yes. Yes. We do not have compassion 
for Black people and Black lives. Because if we did, we wouldn't have conversations about why we are worthy for reparations 400 years later. And so that's the same deficit. When are we going to care about Black people? And certainly when Black people experience violence, racial terroristic violence, no fault of own, not random targeted violence at Black people and Black When will we care about that? So it's about caring about it and not pushing that down a year from now, two years from now, when there is a George Floyd-like incident that makes people feel a certain way, but then a month or two or three or four later, they have no relationship to it. That is about no compassion for Black people culturally, politically, socially, any way that matters, because it's ephemeral. It comes, it goes. It's not long-lasting. It's not a part of who we are. And until that changes, we're going to continue to talk about white Americans are going to continue to talk about why we should or shouldn't. Are they deserving for it? How long has it been? Is the statute of limitations up? We have these procedural technical arguments when really this is about humanity, morality and our conscience. What we and let me answer this question. This is I'm going to let Demario speak on this. We should stop talking about culpability and institutional responsibility. The individuals who created slavery, the individuals who perpetuated slavery are gone. The institutions that made it viable are still here and can be held accountable. We are not talking about institutions. We're talking, we're not, excuse me, we're not talking about individuals, slave mm-hmm. owners, that's done. They're gone. We're talking about institutions of America that are responsible for slavery. We're talking about institutional responsibility, mm-hmm. not individual culpability. That's a totally different matter institutional the same institutions that made america great are here today and they had a role in slavery so there is where the culpability is stop talking about individuals well let me ask you this professor hill if if, and i agree with you wholeheartedly because the way that people want to dismiss the conversation is by focusing on individuals and they think it's a very logical argument. Those individuals that had something to do with this are gone. So why should people, again, individuals today, have to pay for the mistakes of earlier generations? So if my question is about young people, does it matter? Because young people, do they have the ability to change the institution? That's the question. This is the question. If we benefited from the greatness of America and the largesse of America over all these generations, why why are we not responsible for what we did negatively? If we can if we can receive all of what has made us, why can't we be held accountable for what we did do that we know was counter to our values? We so know. Maybe my hope is that younger people start to think in that way, that they eat the whole roll. 
that they don't do what people today are doing, which is saying, yes, give us the greatness of America, but we reject the negative. That's my hope with younger people. Let me ask you this, Demario. This is a quote from someone. Uh, they say the generation that will be paying for it have nothing to do with what was done in the past. And then you're paying people that have nothing to do with it in the past. So they're saying giving us reparations and we had nothing to do with it. But they go on to say we're all immigrants at some point, whether it was voluntary or forced. And nobody needs a handout anymore. Everybody, you know, pulls themselves up by their own bootstraps and works for a living and makes their own way in this world. What do you say in response to that as a reason why Black folks don't deserve reparations? You know, in some ways, it's just actually uh, idiotic to even to respond to that because there's so much wrong with that quote. That person doesn't have any historical information, historical knowledge about uh, handouts. I mean, this whole country was built, again, look at Oklahoma. Let's just use Oklahoma where Dr. Hill are. Land-grant colleges allotments that were stolen from my people, the Creek Indians, and just giving away to white folks to come and settle this land. Land runs. This is this is the biggest giveaways you can possibly have. And it still happens to this very day. So what I'll say to that is my retort to anyone that starts making all those arguments, the first thing I'll say, is it old? Is it old? Is there a debt old? If you can't even start and say, yes, something is old, then I really don't have anything else to say to you, be honest with you. And Ariva, I'm just going to slightly push back. I don't think the young people are going to save us. I think it's people in our generation that has to do this work. And this is why, this is why, because people in our generation, we have the personal connection to Jim Crow. We had the personal connection to, to Pennage farming. We had the personal connection to sharecropping. My grandmother was a sharecropper. My, my father rolled the back of the bus, got kicked in the physically in the butt because he tried to get you know, get in the front seat. My mother was born in 1955 and was called Cripple Nigger Baby every day of her life as my family moved as the black first black family to live on the block. My Aunt Etna, rest her soul, she integrated Oklahoma, Tulsa Central High School and had to fight every day. Like, I, this is a part of who I am. Like, I, I know these people. And I think we are young people. Yeah, we want to bring them along. But they, they, they what they're experiencing now in the Trump world it's a little microcosm of, of what our parents and grandparents and great grandparents, people we knew what they dealt with. And so it, it should motivate us, this generation, to really understand what they mean when it says make America great again. What that really means about taking all of our rights. What that really means about shooting us down in the street and there's no accountability like what happened in Jacksonville, Florida. And it should be our generation. That when people like Ron DeSantis shows up on the scene after he calls the hate, that calls the perpetrator to go and kill black people, that he should be booed down. He should not be able to, to, to talk. Yet what I saw was an older person admonish the crowd when they booed down Ron DeSantis. So what is it going to take? It's going to take our generation living, having our parents and our grandparents living through us bringing along these young people and making sure they understand the realness of the history. Dr. Hill talked about Dr. Clara, Lu uh, Clara Looper, uh, a great, tremendous Oklahoma civil rights uh, leader and was the first person to organize a, a sit-in, not in North Carolina. The first one happened here 
in Oklahoma City, and Dr. Hill can talk talk all about that. Let me, uh, I want you to hold that thought, Demario. And I hear what you're saying about our generation being closer to, uh, you know, these in, important incidents in history. But the reason I, I talk about young people, Dr. Hill, and you're a professor, so uh, I'm going to ask you this question. Young, educated white folks, not black folks, but white, young, educated white folks are skewing more democratic than ever. They are rejecting, in all the national polls, they're rejecting the, uh, you know, the conservative ideology. And with that comes white supremacy ideology. So, when I talk about young people, I'm talking about those people that are showing up in these polls as as trending more, skewing more democratic. So, uh, Dr. Hill, I want to talk to you about your students in your class. What do you see in young white students? And are you hopeful that they might be the generation that rejects this notion that there is no debt owed when we come forward? KBLA Talk 1590. <laughs> I'm trying to find some hope in this conversation. Uh -oh, and I am back with Dr. Hill. Carlos here. Well, the hope is that we hear still Doc, <laughs> Demario Simmons. All right, Dr. Hill, you have a class that you yes. teach on a college campus. You've been teaching for, you know, a long time now. I'm trying to find some hope in these studies and these uh, stats and surveys that say that young, white, educated college graduates are skewing democratic and rejecting the conservative ideology that we see, you know, so pervasive today. Are you seeing that in your students? Arriva. I can't say I don't see enough students to to repudiate that. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just tell the truth on it. But if we're looking for hope, uh, I think there is there. There is hope. I mean, I teach black studies at the University of Oklahoma, um, Norman campus. Uh, and I teach Introduction to Black Studies, Introduction to African-African-American Studies. And I have oftentimes in those classes more white students than I have black students. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean a lot at the University of Oklahoma because it's a majority white institution. Mm -hmm. But it does say that white students at a majority white institution are very interested in understanding this history mm -hmm. and so we could we could just take that as like you know young people are open to mm -hmm. understanding this history understanding these ways that are compassionate um and authentic but um but outside of that um like what i see in my class and 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 what maybe a surveys may say when we actually look at voting behavior, when we look at policies that come down the pike, when we look at resistance to, that's what you would hope to see. The that's what you would hope to see it, but we ne don't necessarily. And so um, there is hope. I wouldn't say there's zero hope. There is tremendous hope. We live in a country of 330 million people. If we don't have any hope in a country that size. Where is their hope? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we have culture and we have politics that militate against all of that. And that has to be overcome through work, through organizing, through a lot of stuff that we know. I mean, Claire, we mentioned the name of Claire Looper. This stuff happens over decades, not over days. 
And so that's what we're up against. Like all the things that the that the conservatives are doing to make it impossible to teach slavery, to teach, that's going to take decades to actually undo. So it's not about young people being excited now. It's about young people being excited for for a long time. And it they, and them caring about this for a long time because that's what it takes. Right. But real ch- no, no. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Obviously, it's going to take a long time to undo the damage uh, that has been done, that was already there, and that has been exacerbated by the presidency of uh, Donald Trump and the movement that he has spawned. Let me ask you this, uh, Demario. If the Oklahoma Supreme Court grants your motion and says you are entitled to your day in court, your case goes back to that trial court, and you are successful, what implication will that have for cases around the country? Other groups of uh, Black folks who are fighting universities, who are fighting cities, who are fighting governmental entities that, uh, you know, either destroyed their property, burned their property out, you know, stole it through eminent domain. What do you see the, the implications of a success in your case at the trial level being? I think the implication would be tr- tremendous. Before, before I answer that, you asked about hope, and I keep this picture on my desk. This is a picture of Charles Ogletree, Dr. John Hope Franklin, and a young 26-year-old me. This picture is from 2004. It's 19 mm-hmm. years ago, all right? Mm-hmm. That's our hope, because both of those gentlemen, those giants of civil rights and Black history, both of them are past now, and yet I'm still working on this. We're still talking about So we have hope. Because we're still fighting the fight. We're still in the mm-hmm. game. So I just wanted to say that. Now, as far as our Important. case, as far as our case, what the implications will be, it would be immense. Because there are other states around the United around the nation that have these public nuisance type uh, statutes. And why the public nuisance is so powerful? Because it eradicates the statute of limitations that really shuts down any case dealing with historical wrongs. So your audience, I know you got a really informed audience, but anyone who doesn't know, statute of limitations is basically a time period between the time you something happens and the time you have to file. Most states with a personal injury like discrimination, it's a two-year statute of limitation. And that pretty much just shuts you down. So that means anything that, did, that happened beyond 1921, you usually can't bring a lawsuit. But with the public nuisance statute that we have and other states have around this nation, there is no statute of limitation as long as you can show that the harm is continuing. And you can show that through a variety of ways. So I think that will be powerful for anyone for us to move forward. But I think already people are looking at public nuisance statutes. But I think what we've done that's been unique and other people can emulate to build power within their communities is through justice for Greenwood. We, we, our public nuisance is just one one small aspect of what we do. We have galvanized about the Greenwood community that was dispersed throughout the nation. We have almost a thousand people in our network. We're doing genealogies. We're doing oral history. We have other litigation going forward because our mind state and our mantra is we are Greenwood, regardless of where we dispersed, because Greenwood was just as much a physical location as it was a mind state. Land ownership, cooperative economics, uh, economic and uh, wealth concentration, and a fearless mind state. Those were the things that built Greenwood. And so you want to rebuild that 
as you get the tangible assets back, but you want to rebuild that community, that community mm-hmm. love of each other. And that's what we're doing at Justice for Greenwood. And that's what we have to do on all of our campaigns to get justice for things that have happened to us. All right. Uh, kudos to you for thinking about the, the importance of building political power back in a city like Oklahoma uh, and, and bringing a thousand of those people who have been a part of that community back together. Dr. Hill, we got a minute. I'm going to give you the last word on this. Where do we go from here with this movement? I mean, we have to recognize, I mean, I can't say it better than DeMario has said it, than so many people in the community have said it. Um, Greenwood deserves reparations, period. We have three remaining survivors who are deserving. If the president of the United States can come to Greenwood and make the case for reparations and the state of Oklahoma can find every reason not to give it, that's a problem with Oklahoma. The president of the United States came and made the case for reparations in the Greenwood Cultural Center. On June 1st, 2021, 100 years after, and we still don't have reparations. That is everything about not having compassion for black people when the president of the United States can come and we still can't find it in our hearts, in our laws, to give reparations to three survivors. That's anti-blackness to its fullest. Yes. Mm. Period. That's where we are as a country, Mariva. Well, on that note, we are out of time. Thank you, Dr. Hill. Always a pleasure. I'm always a lot smarter after I spend time with you and Demario. Demario, uh, I just can't imagine that you lose at the Oklahoma Supreme Court. In fact, I think you win. You win big. You go back to that trial court and you hit it out the park. And as you said, that then encourages and continues to encourage communities around the country uh, to take up action. And we're going to be watching what happens in Tulsa very closely and have both of you back uh, when we are celebrating your victory uh, for those three survivors. We are out of time. Next voice that you hear is Robin Ayers and the Raw Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580.